0: Внимание, говорит и показывает Москва.
1: В которые мы получили, только что Владимир Путин. Никто в не слушал. Привет. В силу Это Навальный. В Я уже раз раз свою раз, работу. Делал. А сотрудники безопасности С вас. С новым веком.
0: As Russia continues to mount tens of thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border. Vladimir Putin says he is seeking a binding commitment from the United States that Ukraine will never become a NATO member. Sounds a lot like blackmail, to be sure, and it's also a bit of a non-starter. And if trouble on one front wasn't enough, Alexander Lukashenko announced this week that Belarus would not stand aside in a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And to drive that point home, the Belarusian Defense Ministry announced that it will be holding joint military exercises with Russia on its border with Ukraine. With US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Europe to meet with NATO and OSCE foreign ministers, Russia is escalating its brinksmanship in Ukraine, and Ukraine is now facing threats on two fronts. So, what happens next? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington DC's funky Adams Morgan neighborhood. And welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia on land that was once owned by George Washington, where he is hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn Collie is military analyst and for, former U.S. Defense Department official Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you again and a big hello to Ivan and Finn.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back on your program.
0: Oh, always great to have you and, uh, and Michael, we've been here before back in April and it ended up with a Putin Biden summit in Geneva in June, and now here we go again. But this time it feels a lot more menacing than that, than last time. I find this pretty disturbing. How about you? What do you What do you see happening right now on the Ukrainian border?
1: Yeah, I think that people kind of breathe a sigh of relief after March April. And perhaps somewhat mistakenly, this is not a series of two different military buildups and events. It's really actually one series of military activity that's been taking place over the course of the year. And it's much easier to understand and interpret it with hindsight, right? The military activity that's taking place now is very serious. I mean, all kind of indicators are ominous, and they suggest that the Russian military is setting itself up for a large-scale contingency with Ukraine. And what happened in March and April certainly was overt and certainly was a case, of course, of diplomacy, but in retrospect, it was also a dress rehearsal. And the number of the units that were deployed back then never actually returned to their garrison. There have been far more Russian units out of garrison near Ukraine's borders over the course of this entire year than in past years. And when you put it all together, you have a lot of out-of-cycle deployments. You have a steady uptick of Russian military equipment. Equipment moving towards the Ukrainian border, pre-formed battalion uh, tactical groups. You have equipment that's being parked, that's not even conducting necessarily training and exercises. And there's a whole host of other indicators, which I'm happy to get into if you're interested, but it's not yes, just a no. pressure.
0: Yeah, no, I actually did want to want to follow up, Michael, on this, because what do you see there on the ground that suggests to you that this may be a preparation for an invasion? You, you see concrete things there, I assume, and what, what are they?
1: Sure. Um, look, the the force buildup is pretty substantial. I don't think any of us from just sort of what we can glean on open sources actually know how much they've managed to put together there so far. Uh, we have units from Central Military District that are deployed there and more that are moving from Central Military District, which is pretty far away from 3,000 mm-hmm. kilometers away. Uh, there has been a remarkable Russian investment in setting up bars, a reservist system, and they've been conducting a partial call-up of reservists to several military districts in recent months. And these reservists are not to backfill the uh, current units, which you know are, are kind of not manned at 100%. But they're to territorial battalions, which are essentially follow-on forces. Like if you capture territory and you have follow-on forces to be able to effectively seize and mm. control it, right? So that part of it actually looks pretty disconcerting. And then throughout the whole year, you've seen Russian units uh, play around with improvised adaptations to anti-tank guided missiles, uh, looking to adapt tanks and other things to different types of drone-borne munitions, or anti-tank guided weapons that the Ukrainian military might field. And they really begin getting around this problem, particularly this year. But they're not sort of defense industry institutionalized solutions. Mm-hmm. They're more like ad hoc solutions. So it also looks like a military where specific units are trying to organize themselves in what you might consider to be sort of assault or breakout groups uh, with modifications to their vehicles to be able to reduce their casualties. Right. So, there's a lot of different signs, and this is just sort of what I am able to glean that suggest overall a military that's been given the order to prepare itself for this kind of military option. I just want to be very clear that I, I personally have no evidence that, you know I, don't know, I would, that some political decision has been made in yeah. But there's important to separate two separate conversations. When folks say, well, we don't know if Putin's planning to invade Ukraine. Hang on. All right, none of us know necessarily what Putin is thinking. People will tell you they know what Putin's thinking is often trying to sell you something. But let's let's be clear. The military takes a long time to prepare something as a real option, something on this scale. It very clearly is doing this because it was given the order to prepare a military option, a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. If you don't think that that's true, that's fine. I'm just going to tell you that the preponderance of evidence shows that it is. All right. The second question is, will Putin actually decide to use force to implement the military option? That I don't know. Now, of course, very much depends on their demands, the red lines they've been issuing all year. But the military activity aligns with the changed Russian political tone, what the senior leadership has been saying throughout the year, issuing demands, red lines, and the like. So it's not out of... um, it's not unusual, it's not out of alignment with the exchange political discourse coming out of Moscow.
0: Yeah, no, I, and I want to unpack all of that stuff, because you raised a lot of interesting points here, the point of capabilities versus intentions. The intentions, of course, are much, much harder to discern, and I want to dive into that. I mean, the political piece of this is is, is, is kind of my bailiwick, and the military, military piece is yours, and I kind of want to dive into that together with you. But before we do that, I want to uh, bring up this Belarus piece. Um, I, I, I wrote my weekly column on Belarus again this week for the Atlantic Council looking at Lukashenko's comments about how Belarus would not stand aside. Uh, the, the comments from the Belarusian defense minister that there would be joint military exercises with Russia on the Ukrainian border. Um, the, and this is all happening in the context of this general militarization of Belarus, this general, quote unquote, merger of the Russian and Belarusian armed forces, the, the the establishment of a de facto permanent Russian troop presence in Belarus. As far as Ukraine goes, now I've written extensively about how the whole Belarus militarization is a threat to our NATO allies in Poland, Latvia and Lithuania. But as far as the Ukraine piece goes, is Belarus a force multiplier there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just Belarusian territory alone is, is a fundamental problem for Ukraine. You know, a long time ago, we chatted on this program, and I was talking about the implications of the political crisis in Belarus, basically meant that Belarus could in no way be counted upon by Ukraine. And, and that essentially is much more firmly ensconced than Russia's political and security orbit and the like. But the, the much more kind of interesting development that's come out of Lukashenko's announcement is that not only uh, is all of that true, but now Russia is able to use Belarus and Belarusian territory to present a northern-northwestern flank to Ukraine, which previously it could not? And, for example, the map the Ukrainian intelligence released that showed kind of a vector coming in from Belarus yep. with some Russian forces, that may seem a bit outlandish, but actually it really isn't. For example, the 41st Combined Arms Army uh, that is sort of parked itself in Yelnya, not far from Belarus— Could easily be that reserve or uh, swing force that punches through, goes through northern, uh, goes through Belarus and basically uh, comes on that northwestern flank. So it's actually not ridiculous at all, given that Lukashenko clearly said he won't be on the sidelines of a future conflict. So it's very clear he's basically signaling that he's going to be on Russia's side, that Belarus might be a party to the war. He's agreed to join exercise on the Ukrainian border between Belarusian and Russian forces, right? So you increasingly begin to see that, you know, from a military perspective uh not only is ukraine just fundamentally qualitative quantitatively outmatched but from a geographic perspective it's in very bad shape with belarus with lukashenko very clearly signaling that he's willing to contribute to a military effort which is kind of what he suggested
0: now i wanted to also you you raised the issue of ukraine being outmatched here and i did want to kind of bring up the the, the issue of Ukraine's capabilities here. Um, are you suggesting this is going to be a complete cakewalk for the Russians? Or what What do the Ukrainians' capabilities look like, you know, now that they have the javelins, now they're getting all this U.S. defense assistance, how, how long could the Ukrainians hold out? Could they hold out? Um, could they surprise the Russians?
1: Well, look, Brian, it, when you're looking at conflict, everything is contingent, right? The, the disappointing mm-hmm. answer is it depends. Right, of course. It depends, <laughs>
0: it depends on what, though. That's- <laughs> yeah.
1: so, so first, it, it depends on what the Russian military operation actually is. My view is that all analogies are imperfect, right? But we know some are useful. So perhaps a useful one is the Russia-Georgia war, a very high-intensity campaign that involves the— Uh, entire Russian military whose goal is sort of to destroy Ukraine's military potential and impose some new political settlement, let's say. And it's one that involves, you know, sizable incursions from different vectors into Ukraine, right? Essentially looking to operationally isolate Ukrainian forces, cut them off, encircle them, and the like. A much large scale operation. So from that perspective, You know, Ukraine's military has, of course, improved dramatically since 2014. So has Russia's, to be clear. Whenever I hear folks say, well, Ukraine's army has gotten a lot better, I'm like, yeah, Russia has too, though. Um, And neither of those militaries are the same forces that fought in 2014, 2015. The thing is that most Ukrainian improvements are at the tactical level. So what the military, I think, in Ukraine can do is it can certainly deter or defend against a limited incursion of the type that took place in 2014 or even a somewhat larger one of the kind that was sort of characteristic of the Russian winter offensive of 2015, which is why that's not what Russia's threatening. Right? Right. It's actually not the Russian plan. It's very clear that the Ukrainian military is capable of defending against a limited attack on that scale. But if we're talking about military operation of something 50 to 100 battalion tactical groups, that's an order of magnitude just much larger than any Russian use of force we've seen in um, recent decades, and it, uh, I think, uh, despite the ukraine military's ability to inflict much higher costs, right, in terms of casualties. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and again, things here, it all depends. A lot of things are more contingent. It's very hard to give a sort of cut-and-dry answer. Right. Because these are two forces that have evolved, so how can you sort of, how can you really game out that mental matchup? Because I always say, I don't like this dilettante business. And, you know, I always say that Excel spreadsheets don't fight. So it's very hard <laughs> to know how two Excel spreadsheets of two armies are, are potentially going to march off onto a battlefield. You know, military balance needs a context to express itself, right, to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why that's I mean. It does all depend. And also, of course, depends on what does the Ukrainian military choose to do. That part, I don't very well know either, for sure. In fact, in some ways, it might be more clear to see what the Russian likely operational plan is going to be compared to knowing what the Ukrainian military plans to do. So it also depends on how they choose to defend and what they choose to do. There's a number of, of, of variants there. I mean,
0: and I, I see, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, feel free to, but I see three possible strategic military goals here, going from the 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 big, the extreme, which I think is highly 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 unlikely, if not uh, you know ridiculous, and that is marching all the way to Kiev and like you know having a military parade down the Khrushchev. Um That I that I think we can dismiss. The two more realistic options um, is is a an attempt to seize what you know Russian r- Russian propagandists used to call Novorossiya, right? That crescent shaped strip of land from Kharkiv in the north to Odessa in the south. And and take that take that strip of land from Ukraine and establish a land bridge from Russia to Crimea. Um, I will not. That that would that's a very disturbing you know uh, scenario for me. Um, I think that would be a much tougher thing for the Russians to do. They would have to ho- they would have to occupy a lot of hostile territory. But I but I'm i not taken that one off the table. The most likely and most limited, I think, is just restarting. Uh, or, or escalating hostilities in the Donbass. And um, in, in, in each of these, I think, are attached to kind of a political goal. What do you see here? Do you, if, if you have to choose from those three, or am I missing something? Um, which do you think is the most likely option and most unlikely option?
1: So... My own view, I don't think there's any Russian intention to seize Kiev or to actually have kind of urban battle in a large metropolis, which very rapidly consumes military power and forces. So I don't believe there's a Russian intent to kind of seize the Ukrainian capital or any of these more uh, nice uh, scenarios. That's one. Um, The second is I don't believe there's any intention to restart the conflict in Donbass or conduct some limited incursion to maybe, you know, maybe create something, let's say, around the hardcover things along that lines. There's no point. There's a general acknowledgement in Russia, you can even read it in Putin's July article, that the strategy thus far in Ukraine has failed. The Ukraine doesn't want the Donbass back from his point of view. Right. At leveraging the Donbass to try to you know, change Ukraine's strategic orientation, to get this grappling hook in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, hasn't worked. I mean, he, short of literally writing, I was wrong in my strategy as field, he essentially has expressed it himself in his, mm-hmm. own, his own pieces, right? So why would Moscow now pay a price to to continue on a strategy that's meaningless and they've acknowledged hasn't worked and russia doesn't really particularly want the donbass all that much if they want it they can annex it at any time there's nobody stopping there's nobody stopping in fact ukrainians you know this is a popular opinion but ukrainians might be happy to to, i think many will
0: not say that out loud but i think that is probably a very popular opinion
1: okay yeah so well you know you invite me because i because i tend to be frank so yeah i think i i think russia's not going to do that if anything they might consider that's in some ways doing ukraine a favor and they're not uh they're yeah, not gonna not. so let's just be very frank on that that doesn't make any sense from the standpoint of russian strategy and political aims in ukraine and limited use of force has not gotten them anything it got them in one, it got them minsk two, but it hasn't gotten their political aims if you read the russian discourse over the past year is a de facto acknowledgement that they've not gotten what they wanted with limited use of force. Mm. So the large scale option, from my point of view, I'll be honest, it's not like a land bridge to Crimea. It is everything east of the Dnieper. And Uh yeah, yeah, the the positioning of Russian forces is such that it appears to be an operation that will involve those, I'll broadly term it, eastern regions of Ukraine, right? Or by eastern, I'll say at least east of the river, and and that, by the way, is a limited take on it. So some, you know, some folks have shown or at least considered variations. Ukraine's intelligence has put out of amphibious landings on the western coast, isolating Odessa as well, and even a potential northern vector through Belarus. So just to be very clear, it is a large scale operation. Ukraine is a very large country, it's geographically a large country in Europe, and you it will involve a very, very large number of forces and. And, and so even if you – just to be clear, even if you subscribe to my analogy of Russia-Georgia war, right, if you were to mentally lay that map – Georgia is a very small country – onto the map of a country like Ukraine, you would realize how much larger that operation would be mm-hmm. to affect yeah. – to, to basically affect that type of uh, uh, military option. So that's the way I look at it. Um, now – the the bigger question is: Would Russia want to actually seize or annex those parts of Ukraine? Of course, I don't know, and I don't like speculating. I have no idea. All I will say is this: that the signs, in terms of what Russia is doing with reserves and some of the other indicators, certainly suggest that they are thinking about occupying territory for some period of time, mm-hmm. or at least they imply that. Right. So it's not. It doesn't look like a, a military operation of small on scale. Shorten in, in in time in timelines but something substantial no so you're i mean so you, you, the scenario you're
0: looking at is is somewhere in between my two worst case scenarios. It, it's it's more than the novosius scenario and it's of course less than a, a military parade on the Kryshatik. um but but we I mean, i'm looking at the map right now um east of the dnipro we're talking about i mean we're talking about o- occupying cities like kharkiv and zaporizhia and dnipro and Chernihiv. I mean, you're, you're talking about occupying some very, very hostile territories in what's going to eventually turn into urban guerrilla warfare, probably. No.
1: Well, we're bypassing them. And, we're bypassing them. We're bypassing them, and uh, in when it comes to the question of guerrilla warfare and insurgency, look, that's anybody's guess. I'll give you. I'll give you this. view. if you read what Russian political leadership writes they are clearly of the impression that they will not be facing a very hostile population, that they believe that the Ukrainian state actually has suppressed these sort of sentiments amongst the Ukrainian people, that Ukrainians actually want to have a much better, more friendly relationship with Russia, and that I don't believe that they subscribe to the view that they will face a significant insurgency. Now, you may well say, hey, that's very wrong, Fine, but I will tell you, I don't feel like there's been a lot of yeah. learning done since 2014 and 2015. Just read Putin's July article and how he concludes right. in talking about Ukraine and Ukrainian public sentiments and his view that they've all been suppressed by this national state and you know, etc., etc. But the point being is, look, it doesn't matter what I think. As a yeah, general. it matters. It what matters they're... what the local leadership thinks in Russia. That's what matters. That's, my yeah. view is not significant. So, from this perspective. I don't think that they believe they will face some serious resistance. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: they are preparing a plan B follow-on force from the looks of it to deal with potential resistance. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. so um, I, I just just to, to make that clear, I I don't think that they are um, that that they're living that they're basically assuming that this will be as you put it earlier a cakewalk, right? They they actually are doing from the looks of it some contingency planning. But my, my take on it is that. They just have a pol- they have a consistently different view of Ukraine. They just yeah. do, yeah. They just do, and and if you don't think that, then you've not been following along since 2014. If you don't think that the Russian no, people- I
0: believe I believe that they believe that. Yeah. Um, I just don't believe that they're right about that. As somebody that goes to you, would be know, pre-pandemic, used to go to Ukraine quite a bit, and um, and, and Ukraine, the 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 reality of Ukraine does not match. This, this this delusional fantasy uh, view of Ukraine that, that Russian uh, strategic thinkers, including the president, have about it. And I'm, I'm thinking, if they were to try this, I mean, that would be effectively giving up on the strategy of ultimately controlling Ukraine one way or another. Um, it would be giving up on uh, on Kyiv, effectively, because the strategy up until now, and you, as you point at, pointed out, that Putin has admitted has been a failure, has been effectively to control Ukraine politically by forcing the DNR and the LNR back in as Trojan horses in a kind of Bosnia Herzegovina scenario, with the DNR and yep. LNR playing the role of Republika Srpska in Bosnia Herzegovina. Right, that's been the strategy all along. It's failed miserably. Um, and but but this strategy is effectively partitioning uh, Ukraine and writing off the West.
1: I mean, that's I think that's one take on it. I think another take on it could be that. Uh, they believe that the reason that past strategy hadn't worked is because they annexed Crimea, and then they seized and occupied a part of Ukraine that really wasn't going to get them there, and that you know if if they essentially seized a much larger part of Ukraine and destroyed a lot of Ukraine's military potential, then they could genuinely force a political settlement onto Ukraine that um, that that. Uh, that would be implemented that they would be able to achieve their political aims through, right? That that's essentially basically the abandonment of of partial military measures, the abandonment of attempts to use force discreetly or with implausible deniability, but to actually go switch to a full on conventional war. And that may be the story that they tell themselves. Or, like I said, it may be your interpretation is correct too that they simply intend to partition Ukraine and be done with it and pay the cost and. You know the the thing that really concerns me is that use of force is never a preferable options for political leaders, right? What what generally happens? This is kind of erroneous. It's risky. It's costly. Um, the the usually political leaders try all sorts of options before resorting to use of force. What generally happens is political leaders like try to talk themselves into it, right? They talk themselves into it, and they begin to a narrative, and the narrative is essentially that. A conflict is inevitable, other people are to blame, they sort of force the scenario onto us. And they begin to ask whether using force now would be less costly or risky than using it down the line, even though it would be costly, for sure. But whether or not it will ultimately be cheaper than waiting, letting the situation deteriorate, and using force down the line. And what concerns me personally is that I increasingly begin to at least see this narrative taking place in Russian political leadership, where it feels like a leadership that is slowly talking itself into a military mm-hmm. option. Um, now, I um,
0: before we kind of move into the second half and talk about what the West's options are in this scenario, I did want to kind of dispense of the other the other motivations, the other things I, I, I kind of saw happening potentially here. Um, one of them you already dismissed. I'm not quite ready to dismiss it yet, but that they were maybe aiming for Minsk three. You know, aiming for Minsk three, creating a situation where, you know, forcing Ukraine to sign a ceasefire with a gun to their head, that's again, like in February 2015, but this time to make sure they get what they they, they want. That's that's one scenario. I, I agree with you
1: on that. I mean, I think in generally there we're in violent agreement, right? Maybe we're just getting at that question from different perspectives. But, you know, my view of the Russia-Georgia war analogy is fairly um, – you know, I, I think it's in very much in accordance with your perspective of how Russia intends to get Ming 3 I just don't believe they're going to get there through some new escalation of Donbass or a limited okay. operation. That's all. Okay, so you see a more extensive
0: operation. The other thing I see, and I mean, this is not – I would not say this is the primary cause of all of this, but I think Putin is pretty pissed off about the Medvedchuk situation. Um, I think he's really pissed off about that. Medvedchuk's his buddy. Medvedchuk, he is the, go- the godfather of Viktor Medvedchuk's daughter. Uh, Medvedchuk is now, correctly in my opinion, under house arrest and facing, face, facing criminal charges for high treason. Um, what he's done in Ukraine would qualify for as high treason in any place in the world, including our own country. Um, but Putin's pretty angry about this. But not only, it's not just personal. Medvedchuk was a vector of Russian influence in Ukraine. And by shutting down Medvedchuk, they're shutting down a whole political operation inside Kiev, inside the Rada, inside re- Ukrainian media that Russia could previously count on. That they can't count on anymore. So that's, I mean, I I, I do not yep. think this is the primary cause, but would you agree with that this is a cause?
1: Absolutely, you're on it. It all began last year. Whenever people have asked me why now, I've told them it's not about anything that's happened now. This began last year. Mm-hmm. It began with a decided turn in Zelensky administration, mm-hmm. going after Medvedchuk, going after Russian influence in Ukraine, and making clear that, okay, you, his, his administration is not going to make these big compromises with Moscow, okay? That's when it all began, and it's very clear from my point of view that things began, shifted dramatically starting last year. It's not about anything that's happened in the last month or, or even much of this year.
0: So it's when Putin finally came to the realization that many of us realized years ago that the, that the political war for Russia was lost in Ukraine a long, long time ago, and the only thing he has and the only thing he has, to, to, the only card he has to play is kinetic force now, and he's gonna he's gonna play that card. Is that is that would, would that be a correct way to characterize it?
1: I mean, I think that's a fair way to characterize it. I would give I, I would give you sort of an um, an in between option, which is to say he began to realize that uh, threatening a war, engaging in course of diplomacy to try to change policy of the Zelensky administration and the United States was his only real good option. And whether or not he tends to follow through on that is, of course, up to debate, right? Right. But certainly, let's put it this way, if, if you thought it was a chance and it looked kind of a bit real in March and April, it looks very real now. Yes. It looks very different and very real now, you know, March and April. I think we were talking on your program. I said, "This is the case, of course, with diplomacy." Yep. I don't think they look like uh, they're serious about uh, a large-scale invasion. And I'm usually, you know, on your show, I'm usually pouring cold water on all these. Yes, yes. yes, you're I, you're I, usually I, talking I, me off the ledge, and you're not yep. doing that right now, most
0: which the time, scares the living hell out of me. So.
1: I'm not. I'm not. The situation's very serious. It's it's the it's the most concerning it's been since. Uh, Fall 2014, it is very serious, and folks should take it seriously. And a lot of people, I'll be honest, but a lot of people out there are skeptical, both because of too much crying wolf in past years, but also because there's this general mantra of Putin is risk-averse. I don't know where people got this idea, but there's this hand-waving of, like, Putin the risk-averse, and and he's not going to use force on a large scale. I think people have missed a lot of contemporary Mm -hmm. Russian history, if they think that's true. I don't know who he's risk-averse compared to. Maybe compared (laughs) to... Maybe compared to Attila the Hun, he's risk averse. I don't like, I'm not sure who's is, who's is the right. Who, I'm just being frank. Like, I don't know what that's yeah, an no. assessment. But uh,
0: when well, we, we, we get a situation where Kaufman's not talking Whitmore off the ledge, we're, we're,
1: we, we know it's just, a serious situation. No, I see, people, are writing, people are writing this as a mantra to me online and saying, well, Putin's risk averse. I'm like, you know what? If you think this is a bluff because he's risk averse, stake that position analytically. Just stake it out. Put right. yourself out there. That's your view. That's fine. Uh, I don't think that's a luxury anyone can afford, and, uh, and and I'm deeply skeptical that this is the case. I'm actually pessimistic about where things are going.
0: Now, the last thing I want to go to before we shift to Western options is Putin's remarks, uh, was yesterday, um, where he gave a speech uh, claiming that he is going to push for – a, uh, a ironclad guarantee from the United States that Ukraine would never be a member of NATO. This is the the play for the you know the uh, the famous sphere of influence that he's been seeking forever. Um, is 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 that a re- is that just bluster? How do you how do you interpret Putin's remarks there?
1: Well, you know, ironclad is a term that Tony I mean, Blinken's been using as sort of as <laughs> sort of the State Department's term. Right. Of, uh, political or maybe diplomatic or uh, he said that what he wants is precisely legal judicial guarantees. Yeah. A treaty. A treaty. Uh, yeah. What, yeah. And, and he said that specifically because, um, according to him, the West has failed to deliver on verbal commitments that are made in the past, not to expand. NATO, which, were, which weren't made. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. You know, just just looking at looking at what he said. Um yeah, he basically said that okay, engage in dialogue, in the United States. Uh, want to elaborate? Want to elab- get elaboration on concrete agreements that would rule out any further eastward expansion of NATO. And, and I've been I've been harping on this point a lot. It's not just about formal acceptance of Ukraine to NATO. That's not the issue. That's the the Russia red line has moved. And he says, and the deployment of weapon systems posing a threat to us in close proximity to Russia's territory, because essentially uh-huh. the conversation shifted. From Ukraine and NATO to NATO and Ukraine, to be a conversation about the extent of US defense cooperation in Ukraine, US and UK military presence there, as an example, mm-hmm. not to include other NATO members. But look, it's always a focus on us. We kind of stand out there right. alone as a focal. You know, Russians not afraid about, is not, not staying up and night worried about Portugal. So it, it is about us. Um, and how we use Ukrainian territory, what we base there, the kind of force we have, and the kind of weapons we transfer to Ukraine. They have shifted that goalpost. Right be a conversation beyond just whether or not Ukraine is formally in in. in so
0: it's the Javelins and the other the other the other defense assistance we've been shipping to Ukraine.
1: So I think those tactical weapon systems, for their point of view, uh, create a slippery slope, a trajectory, right? And mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't think the chief Russian complaint is with the Javelin or the tactical system per se, but with the defense cooperation in general and the trajectory it's on. And so those are all those are all pieces of it. If that makes sense. Uh-huh. But the the general, the general perception is, okay, from a Russian point of view, there's absolutely nothing preventing the United States from de facto, from functionally uh, working with Ukraine as a NATO ally without it being formally in NATO. Yes, it doesn't have those guarantees, but it doesn't mean that U.S. long-range precision fires won't be based in Ukraine. It doesn't right. mean that U.S. missile defense won't be based in Ukraine. It doesn't mean the U.S. aircraft or bombers won't use Ukrainian territory. We use it to overfly it now, actually, quite regularly. Mm-hmm. So from a Russian point of view, let's just put aside the issue of Ukraine and NATO for a second. What are the military implications of right. all that? By the way,
0: of navigation exercises in the Black Sea, for example. Yeah, all
1: that stuff. Which, by the way, they really should have thought about that in 2014, 2015. But, mm-hmm. you know, like if these, were, if these were the major strategic concerns and they had thought long term – They should have really thought about the implications, the consequences in 2014 and 2015 and what this would mean down the line. Um, But, okay, long story short, this this is where the line has shifted. And between those two, it's hard for me to discern which one do they really want, because there's a couple of fundamental problems. So they want it all. (laughs) Well, yeah, but that's that's an opening. That's an opening position. Right. Right. The the thing that the thing that is to me clearly a feint, my perspective. It's Putin's common that, okay, we would like to have substantive talks on this issue. So those are easy to have. Those are easy to have under strategic stability dialogue. Don't believe for a second that this military deployment as costly and as lengthy as it is, is just to have some substantive talks, right? Okay. A lot of times here we get, we suffer from, you know, off ramp where we think Russians want an off-ramp and right. need to get some agreement and they're gonna grab an off-ramp and that they want an off-ramp. No, this is not a crisis that has emerged organically. It hasn't right
0: right?
1: yeah it's been created this is coercive diplomacy they are looking to compel a change in ukrainian policy and in ours it's not clear what the time horizon is right for Mm -hmm. for this all i can say is that they're not going to deploy all these forces slowly forever they will at some point decide whether or not they're going to act or they're going to go home right? right Uh, in terms of, you know, units returning back to their garrison and so on, because this is pretty expensive. This will be pretty expensive to maintain. But I, I, I want to be cautious just that I, I neither think that the, that the sort of more ridiculous demands are, are the, the only thing they'll accept, but I also don't buy the notion that there's some easy off-ramp, that they want something very basic to just have some talks or a couple of visible meetings, and that this is all about that. It really isn't. So even giving them all of this, which is not
0: going to happen, would not uh, would not end the immediate military threat on the Ukrainian border is what you're saying, is what I kind of hear you saying.
1: Well, the, OK, the, the, the sort of talks and whatnot, no, that's not what's going to get us there. The the specific concrete demands that Putin made, well, look, Brian, I think you and I know, and I suspect he knows too, that first of all, the United States cannot give uh, legal judicial guarantees on behalf right. of NATO the alliance. Well, of course not. Exactly. Right. Just, we just can't. We, we can't. In another universe, if we wanted to, we can't. Right. Right. One. Two, NATO cannot make a legal treaty with Russia. Right. It just, just, just can't. The, the, the um, 30
0: individual members would have to make a legal treaty with Russia.
1: Yeah. I. I we cannot make guarantees on the part of France and France can't give right. legal guarantees, judicial guarantees on the part of the United States. It's not how the world works. Right. <laughs> so. Right. So, um so it's just the demand as is isn't very workable it's not practical it's right. something that i think um anyone could remotely deliver so and they must appreciate and understand that that the united states can't sign some treaty on behalf of nato and everybody and also ukraine too you know right. we'll sign we'll right. sign on behalf of everyone like if this is what this is completely well this,
0: ridiculous. Is, well this does go to this kind of this this worldview of the you know what what uh, what what it's been called the the Russian American Committee to run the world as if anything the Russians and the Americans agree with everybody else just has to go along with but this is actually a perfect segue to get into where I wanted to go in the in the second part of about what the Western options are in a few moments we will continue our discussion and examine the options the United States and its allies have in the face of Russia's brinkmanship on the border I'd like to remind you you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington the McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, is military analyst and former U.S. Defense Department official Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on i. YouTube, Google our podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at powervertical. Кадри, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин с... не слушал. Василий, Привет. Поправки, Это Навальный,
1: искусство. я свою работу. No, no, yeah.
0: So Russia's brinkmanship on the border has set off a policy debate in Washington and other western capitals. Latvia, for one, is calling for American boots on the ground in Eastern Europe, more of them. And on the other side of the spectrum, a widely read article in Politico is arguing that the U.S. should be pressuring Ukraine to cave into Russia's demands to resolve the crisis, effectively appeasing Moscow's aggression. Uh, Michael, how do you see the U.S. options here, and what course do you think is the best one for the Biden administration to take?
1: Well, in the short answer, not great. Yeah, I mean, not- that's the, that's the honest answer. They're, they're not they're not good and each of them comes with its own dilemma and and if, if they were great this wouldn't be much of a much of a crisis would it So uh, I, I think it's a real challenge for the United States as to what to do. I think that uh, part of the U.S approach has to be making clear and credible to Russia what the costs, of mm-hmm. an invasion on the scale would be. by cost Secretary
0: and- Blinken hinted about that actually yesterday.
1: He, he has, he has. And I suspect Bill Burns did as well when he went to Moscow, the economic and political costs. But the economic costs in particular have to be made real. In order to make him a credible instrument, you have to have your allies on board, right? Because actually an important part of U.S. ability to economically coerce or punish Russia, it cannot just be us saying that you know, we'll, we'll we'll do much harsher sanctions and the like. Russians have to believe that Germans, French, and others will be on board with that sort of thing, and that's a that's a diplomatic effort that has to take place. You have to actually build what looks like more of a collective position amongst European allies yep. to threaten a collective position. And again, I hope that's what
0: Secretary
1: Blinken is doing
0: at this moment as we speak, as he is in Europe.
1: Yeah, that's what I, say, I said to somebody earlier today. That sounds like a job for the State Department. So it, it's uh, uh, to make those are costs credible as a threat, you have to genuinely build that visible uh, collective position or relative consensus and the like, and to disabuse Moscow of the view that, you know, yes, the United States is going to be hawkish, but actually Germans, French, and whatnot, they don't care as much about Ukraine. They'll be pretty skittish. They might consider sanctions escalatory, etc etc and that europeans will be divided um and, and you now this kind of you you can easily you can easily see how this impression might might mm-hmm. might take hold that's okay that's a part of it um i think another part of the conversation is uh really talk about the political cost the opportunity costs that russia mm-hmm. will suffer with the united states you know we've just gotten off on strategic stability talks we're discussing future of arms control under strategic stability, we're discussing a whole host of issues we have between our countries that have, you know, built up in recent years, and uh, you know, Russians kind of like these talks. Russians like the summits they get uh, with President Biden. They like all, they like this engagement, this not pomp and like, circumstance. Yeah, yeah, but not just for the sake of, it, but substantively, there are important things that are being discussed, and I and I think a lot of that is gonna is gonna fall away, and what stability we may have come to enjoy in the last couple of years there'll be a real opportunity cost as they're going to pay they're going to pay in terms of their interest and in what they want to say in the relationship with the United States in the relationship with Europeans i think um, you know and certainly another part of the conversation of and do, why do they want to pursue such an incredibly costly and risky option to get what they want right is there actually a is there actually a compromise to be had certainly Certainly, we can have, as Moscow put it, substantive talks. I don't know if we'll reach any potential agreement there, but there's two things I know. The first is that the talks ultimately have to be between Russia and Ukraine on the thing that involves Russia and Ukraine. So there's a big problem in the Russian conception that we and them can meet. Mm -hmm. There's going to be like this map of Ukraine, and we're going to look at this map. And it's going to be not like 2021, but more like 1921. And we're going to decide based on this map of the two of us looking at it, kind of who gets what sphere of influence, and you know where does the Donbass go, and and et cetera, et cetera. And the world just doesn't work that way anymore. Well, it doesn't for us. So so maybe for us in China, let's let's be frank. We don't speak for the for the world, but it doesn't for us. Yeah, but we got to
0: we have to acquiesce on this for it to work, and we don't. We don't operate that. At least I hope to God we would never operate like that again. But,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Let's be blunt. We agree that we're disinclined to do anything like that. So the so the truth is that it has to be a conversation. The fundamental includes Ukraine. It has to be Russia, Ukraine now, and us at the table. I will tell you my view. I thought always one of the biggest mistakes the United States had is did is that. Really did not like the Minsk II agreement and did not want to part. Of, want a, we, right. we were not, the, however, you know it worked out, we we were not a part of the Normandy talks as part of the conversation. Right. We're not at the table. And I thought that was a huge mistake. I, I just thought we should always have been a part of the conversation. And we need to be a part of a conversation, whether it's on the implementation of Minsk II, whether it's on other political aspects of this conflict, but we really need to be there. I mean, let's put it this way if you don't, do you like where we've ended up now? Right. Well,
0: I mean, yes and no. I mean, the irony of the crisis that we're in now is that policy has been working effectively. The, The, you know, the Ukraine policy in broad strokes has been working, and this is, you know, this is witness how frustrated the Russians are right now. Now, the fact that we're where we are now, yeah, that pours cold water on that a bit, but.
1: Sure. Well, okay, but let me let me give you a different take. So, first of all, I. From my own point of view, I'm personally not that excited on how Ukraine how Ukraine looks. That's an entirely different subject, but um, I don't. I'm not sure that that this is to me at least that brilliant of a success. But more importantly, this conflict is not a trajectory towards being frozen or towards peace. And it's on a trajectory towards a second, much larger war. And that's always, in some ways, it's been my (laughs) bias as an analyst uh, throughout that I just didn't see a peaceful settlement coming out of this the way the way things were going. So I just don't believe we were on a path to a freezing of the conflict and people sort of settling into a, you know, semi-unacceptable status quo. I, I do actually think that the conflict was on trajectory for for renewal of war at some point down the line. We should be frank on that. And okay. I, I think that, um, yes, it has – the policy has worked in denying the Russian effort and attempt to attain their political aims in Ukraine. Not entirely, but broadly speaking. That's true. All right, but uh, we are now at an inflection point. Right, mm-hmm. we're an inflection point where uh, we have to recognize it may not continue working moving forward, or at the very least, we just have to recognize that uh, there's a real risk that this ends up being a second war, and ha- and and the question is, what are we going to do about that? That's where we are now. What are right. we going to prevent it, and what are we going to do if it happens?
0: Yeah, and it, again. With, given that it's highly, highly unlikely that we're going to go, you know, that we're going to get involved in a kinetic war between Russia and Ukraine, um, it's less likely than highly unlikely, actually, um, that, that leaves our, our our economic instruments on the table. And when I was looking, looking carefully at, at, at Secretary Blinken's remarks, you know, it says things we have not done in the past or things we had shied away from in the past. Um, these things, to me, I think sound obvious. I think we're talking about a swift ban. Um. Again, would have to get the allies on board for that. But I think I think if Russia invades Ukraine again, I think that'll be a lot easier than it is if if Russia doesn't invade Ukraine. Um, and also, we're talking about a, maybe perhaps a ban on the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt, sanctioning Russian sovereign debt. Um. Yeah. Those things could be crippling for that economy. Now, I don't know if Putin. Putin's probably baked this into the equation and is ready to, to 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 bear those costs. Um. Which which tells me where where we might be going. It's kind of a decoupling of Russia from the globalized economy. Um, is, is what we may be looking at here. No?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I agree. I think sovereign debt is the lower hanging fruit, and SWIFT you'd have to convince the actual country to run SWIFT, but yeah. I I, I think that R- Russians are pretty well aware of what we can do, and so if they choose to use force and they price those consequences in, um, I think that the challenge is always that you know, Russia was actually not in a very good economic position at all in 2014 and 2015 during those last two offensives. And the challenge is weighing, you know, to what extent you, you believe economic costs and consequences are, 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 are going to deter Moscow in this case. And, and I'll be frank, their track record, their historical track record is not good. It is mm. not good. E- even specific in this conflict, Russia has conducted offensives after we've imposed sanctions and threatened other sanctions consistently. Right, consistently. So, if you think sanctions deter Russian use of force, I'll tell you, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying you should be prepared to be disappointed on that front because the history of that. Although we've
0: not dropped the big one yet, I mean, again, I
1: consider swift and sovereign debt to be the big one.
0: You know, those yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: look, if sanctions on Russia were probably kind of at a three out of ten, or maybe some might argue a two out of ten, we're nowhere yeah. near where we are with Iran. So that's very true. We haven't, and as always. You know, coercive instruments work best when you threaten them. They they don't work well once you've used them, right? You right. have to you have to have them in reserve to threaten them. And I imagine that's what Blinken's doing. I don't know, but that's right. what I suspect. Well, he's supposed to be meeting with
0: Lavrov on the sidelines of the OSCE Foreign Ministerial Meeting in in Stockholm. So I'm I'm yeah. assuming that's when that threat is going to be issued.
1: Well, he did but that meeting was very short so I'm assuming it was a it was a very brief conversation of, mm. of established positions sort of reading each other back and forth a script and right. uh, but I, I don't I don't believe that's where the real conversation is going to take place um, so so my take on that is yes economic sanctions are obviously the mainstream in the United States has I am fully with you I don't believe the United States necessarily don't think NATO is going to fight Russia directly on behalf of Ukraine Um. That doesn't mean the U.S. Has, doesn't have options to, you know, help Ukraine militarily somehow beforehand. But that's not, you know, tinkering on the side at the tactical level isn't going to change this picture. It's not going right. to dramatically It's not going to change Russian calculus either. If you're if you're looking at from a standpoint of an operation on the scale, then they priced in whatever casualties they assume they're going to take, and it's it's not going to change. Uh, it's not going to change any decision making at the political level where you want it to take place. Um. That, that part's also true. So, you know, the, the thing, the part of the conversation that we often miss, O'Brien, is, yes, we know that Russia cares tremendously about Ukraine. We know that Putin personally cares about Ukraine. He's written so much about it. <laughs> um, he's, I mean, he's 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 both sentimental and sort of fixated on the subject in, in a lot of interesting ways. But... Um, you know, Russian elites also very much care about ultimately the broader security environment in, in Europe and the implications for Russia, the strategic picture beyond Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a part of the conflict is about that, right? So I think the one the one uh, threat, the one conversation that might prove meaningful as well with them, if these others are not, is they have to understand that one of the consequences of use of force on a scale will lead to U.S. allies in Europe demanding a substantial return of U.S. forces Mm -hmm. and U.S. capabilities to Europe. Already happening. Have been draining away because the United States is focusing and reordering itself around China and the Pacific theater, right? And that they are going to uh, take European security down the road that they're not going to like. If they don't like what it's looked like, since the end of the Cold War in the 90s and 2000s, they're really not going to like U.S. military posture in Europe after this act. That uh, from, from the standpoint of strategy, looking at Russia's position, looking at Russia's principal concern about U.S. military capabilities, presence and infrastructure in Europe, they will in many ways will be fulfilling uh, their own worst prophecy mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Ukraine, right? So if we just put Ukraine aside for a second and we talk about what the United States is likely going to do afterwards, what U.S. allies will depend on the United States to do, right? A substantial shift in force posture, a real reinvestment. Yeah, because, you know, Baltic states, Poland, other countries will rightly say if, you know, Russia is willing to use military force on this kind of scale, um, you know, my next... Is uh is the is the the extent of Allied force posture in my country really sufficient to deter? These these sort of questions are inevitably really gonna come. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I think you're gonna start to see talk of serious US military bases in Poland and in the Baltic states if this happens. No, that's that's correct. And that 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 should be uh should be made clear to Moscow. Last thing I wanted to touch on. Is that this is all happening amidst a you know, policy debate in right here at Washington that you you and I have been following closely and and and, and you know chiming in on uh, to the extent that people listen to us um, between the, the the relative weight we should be uh, pay up uh, the relative attention we should be paying to China and Russia we've we've had a couple of podcasts on this over over, over the over over the last several months. Um, and I, quite frankly, I I saw – I don't know how about you, how you interpreted Sam Cherub's piece in Politico uh, on Ukraine, um, but I saw that as, as as a piece of this debate, um, actually. How do you think what we're seeing now uh, between Russia and Ukraine is – how do you see that affecting this debate? Is it shifting the debate?
1: Well, look, the debate in, in some ways intersects. Those who are in in, in Russia studies fo- or focused on Russia policy, those who focus on Ukraine policy, those in the transatlantic community that focus on European security. And it's a debate with some hard lines and camps in Camp right? um, Senate, right? And that debate, you know, people come out with swords and axes swinging. Uh, right. That's for sure. And Sam's Politico article definitely brought that out over the course of the weekend. I was actually... Believe it or not, I wasn't tracking it. I was down at ACs in New Orleans, which is a. Oh, uh, a <laughs> yeah, yeah, as a proper Russia Russia studies nerd, I was down at ACs in New Orleans, and I actually had not been tracking it until I had the misfortune of looking on Twitter, and I began to realize that over the weekend, there was a, a sort of a supernova type effect result. I, w- from- I was in before. Vilnius, I was in Lithuania. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, just to be clear, um, and uh, <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah, he, he okay, he brought an argument basically that the, the United States the United States can't effectively coerce to Russia, so we should, we should they should pressure pressure United pressure Ukraine to uh essentially I- implement and the part of implement the, Minsk, Minsk on in Russia. the Russia, Russia in the way that Russia wants, basically. The way that Russia to, wants, yeah. To, to get them essentially to get them to do what Moscow wants them to do. I'll I'll make a glib summary. Right. Right, right. Um to avoid war. And and, and bring out that argument, and of, and of course, that you know, the, the highly, highly blue, intentional argument to make. If you know, if, if your broader question to me is um, which of the different sides I agree with, well, usually I'm on my own side. So that's as you know that. No, I
0: guess what I was trying to drive at is, first of all, what? Yeah, I would like to hear your your take on all this, but also, how much do you see this, the current crisis? Influencing the policy debate that's going on in Washington right now—is it going to be—is it going to bolster the the position of, of of the Russia hawks, or is it going to bolster the position of the China firsters, or is it going to
1: bolster the position of the Russia appeasers? Okay, so I'll take the easy part of that first, which is that I do think that this entire this entire conversation is going to help uh, right size how people in D.C. view Russia and the Russia prompt set and prioritize it accordingly. As I have consistently argued, yes, it is China first, but it is not China only. Mm -hmm. We cannot decide where Russia will be on the agenda. Russia gets a strong vote where it's going to be on the foreign policy agenda. If there's a major war in Europe come next year, that's going to be a very significant, what we like to say, a deciding minority vote on where it should be in U.S. foreign policy considerations. You know? It sure is a good time for an article on foreign affairs titled "The Myth of Russian Decline."
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think you were you were prescient there. I, I credit where credits due. You and Andrea deserve a lot of credit for that piece.
1: Yeah, I had I had argued for some time that we had fundamentally been ignoring uh, the reality that there's a potential for a second major war in Europe, either because of the crisis in Belarus or second Russia-Ukraine war, and that there were whole sorts of reasons why people were overly dismissive of Russia in general, wanting to write Russia off to focus on China as a de facto sort of prioritization scheme. And and that we really can't afford to imagine a world that doesn't exist and we have to deal with the real world it is. And Russia's in that real world and you have to have real answers to Russian power and influence. Right. And you can't just focus on China because it's much easier to have one adversary as opposed to two. I know one adversary is easier than two, right? And I know that we are one more one war military that is from a defense we are a military that, that is suitable for one major war. But this is the reality. Um, OK, I've ridden that hobby horse on and off for over a year, particularly because I feel this is the year to write it. But mm-hmm. um, I, I hope it positively influences that conversation in the NSS and the, and the National Defense Strategy then. Yes. On the, the sort of the various camps on Russia and Ukraine. You know, I think. I'll give you a pessimistic assessment. I think a lot of people stopped listening to each other long ago. I think people have some hard and fixed views on these issues, and they are mostly writing pieces that are either camp positioning or policy lobbying, and they're not engaging that seriously with each other. And a lot of the debates I've seen have not been debates in earnest. They're not people that are constructively engaging with each other's arguments and taking them as sort of full-faith arguments but are coming at this with different positions informed by the ideology, their values and the like, and that is where we are. And I'm, I'm sad that parts of the field have become so toxic and, and Sam's article was one of those things that brought it out again. Um, but, yeah, I don't know what else to add
0: to that conversation. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, my problem with that piece is that I just fundamentally disagree with it. And I don't think sure. we should be playing with Ukraine's sovereignty. It's, it's theirs, not ours. Um, I, I don't think it's going to do anything to resolve the problem because Russia will pocket what it gets and go for more, um, as we're seeing right now. Um, so I I, 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 I I disagree with that argument on an intellectual level. Yep. Um, I, I don't like the... The, the coarseness of the debate uh, uh, in in the Russia watching community uh, here in Washington and elsewhere um, you you get can get very easily branded a heretic um, you know by by one side or the other and, and that that certainly has not helped the debate but I think we are kind of an intra- in 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 kind of mutually exclusive positions I mean for me Ukraine sovereignty is an absolute it's non negotiable. Um, and we don't have the right to negotiate it. I, I you know, we don't. We, I, I don't want to go back to this Yalta world of the the Russian-American committee to to, to run the planet. Um, that's not how that's not how things work in the twenty first century. So I guess my feeling on this is as I have the, just deep intellectual reservations about the other side. It doesn't mean I don't think they're
1: nice people. You know? Right. So so here's my view. I I, I don't personally I don't intellectually so I agree with a position. Right. Uh, um, for one, I'm not a fan of premature concessions, just in right. general. Um, in in any case, even if it wasn't like over Ukraine sovereignty, if it was over anything else, I'm not a fan of necessarily premature concessions. And um, and, and, and I I do agree. Well, I don't believe in domino theories. I I am very wary of just early on uh, conceding to coercive demands because absolutely nothing that prevents your opponents from making further coercive demands, right. right? And just and just pressing pressing you for more. So it's all those issues that you mentioned. Now, I will disagree on the personal side of how people treated Sam, right? There, you have if you if you have respect for yourself, you have to have respect for other people. You mm-hmm. have to treat other people with dignity. I know Sam, other people know him. I know all the people in his communities. These are real individuals to me, right? And and you have to assume that their arguments are good faith. You may not like their values of morals. No, we're, we're on, we're on the point, same page. But, we're on yeah. the same page. But that's just, yeah, that's just how it is. And, and I'll be frank, there are some people. In this community that no matter how visceral the debate gets, um, they, they, they honor those terms. And there are definitely some people that make it toxic. You know, I won't mention any names, but there are some people to me that are very much a part of the problem in the conversation. So, well, this
0: is a conversation that is certainly going to continue. Uh, let's let's hope it gets more collegial in the future. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up, Michael?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess the only thing I would add is that, uh, at least from my point of view, the way I see things as grave as they may seem. Russian military posture to me doesn't suggest an invasion necessarily imminent. I think the situation is going to unfold in the coming months, not yep. in the coming days. Right. I think some people have asked me, why don't Ukrainians mobilize and do all these things? I say, actually, you have to understand, this is a very difficult economic and political decisions for the Ukrainian military. It doesn't mean they're not taking it seriously. It is economically costly to mobilize. If you mobilize too soon, you don't know where to send forces. You have to pay to take those people out of the economy and feed them, right? You don't mm-hmm. know what the actual timing of a potential Russian military action will be. Or if it will even happen, right? You cannot do it too early. Right. When you're operating with objective constraints and economic resource constraints and all these things, um, I think Ukraine itself is in a dilemma. But just to be clarified, just because there isn't some panic on the Ukrainian side doesn't mean they aren't taking this with with the with the gravity that, that it should be. Oh, uh, all indications are there, you're taking it very seriously, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and actually, I think they are judicious in not mobilizing uh, reserves right now, just because of all these other considerations. It's it's, it's, it's a practical decision on their part. Um, you know, as for the rest of us, I don't think that necessarily political decisions have been made in Moscow. And I guess the main area where people split is to what extent they think that Moscow is ultimately bluffing or if they believe that it's going to fall through with a threat. And that's the thing that kind of keeps me up at night.
0: Yeah, and it keeps me up at night as well, and I think it's keeping a lot of other people up at night as well. And on that note, we will wrap it up, because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington has been military analyst and former U.S. Defense Department official Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Michael, thank you as always for an enlightening discussion. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back in your podcast. Great to have you. Um, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-in- post-production duties, making us all sound a whole hell of a lot better than we do in real life, and cleaning up my many messes. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, and if you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production.